All right, we're in 2 Corinthians 3 tonight, and I just want to begin by asking you to think about what is the worst job you've ever had? I, I know I shared with you last week about my job at the tape company, but that's not the worst job I've ever had. Um, for me, it was probably the summer I worked at UPS. Uh, so this is the summer before my senior year of college, summer before I got married. I took the job because it paid $8 an hour, which back then sounded like a lot of money. And uh, it only worked you three and a half hours at a time because it was such hard work. That's all they could get out of you. You were wrung out by the end of that. We were, my job was unloading semi-trailers. So you would stand in front of some rollers, they'd pull up a, a trailer and you would just unload, 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 box after box after box. Um, and they just kept you working hard. I mean, they, they, they kept cracking the whip. And it wasn't the hard work, it was, it was dangerous too because you would be putting boxes on this belt and then a wall of them would collapse on you. One time uh, a guy came in while I was unloading boxes and he opened up a couple of hatches in the floor where they kept things underneath and then forgot to close them. So I stepped back and fell flat on my back Fortunately, there were tires underneath. If it would have been engine parts, I'd probably not be here today. I mean, so it, was, it, was a, it wasn't the most fun job, but I don't mind hard work. I kind of like getting a good sweat going. What I hated about the job was they, they took people who were about your age but had been working there longer and made them your supervisor. And so, you know, I had this young guy who was, like I said, my age, who was every, every 30 minutes I'd see him yelling at me and cussing at me and telling me, hurry up. And, you know, in, in regular life, I just, okay, let's, let's go outside and settle this. You know, I wasn't a violent person, but I wouldn't have taken that. But this was my job. I had to put up with that every night. So uh, at the end of that summer, I was really glad to say, you know, I don't think I need this job anymore. I'm going back to school. Uh, just did it because I was getting married and wanted to have something in the bank when we got married. But uh, think about, I think about people who, that's not, that's not a summer job for them. That's a reality. They do something every day that they really don't enjoy. They work for someone who just makes their life miserable. Or the people who would say, it's not that I've got a bad job, it's that I've got no job at all and I wish I had one. There's so many of those people out there for various reasons, either poor economy or health reasons or, or various things. There are so many people who, in our world, in our culture, who their work or lack of work is a curse for them. And so it's important for us to understand, yes, as important as jobs are, our real calling is different than what we get paid to do. That's even true of me. I am paid to be the pastor of First Baptist Church, and it's the best job I've ever had, and I hope it's the only job I ever have the rest of my life. But it's still, that's not ultimately my calling. The truth is, all of us have the same calling, and we talked about it last week. Our calling is to be the fragrance of the knowledge of the Son of God. Everywhere we go to spread with us the fragrance of the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember we talked about how you bring a bag of food into a, into a room and everyone just zeroes in on you. They smell that food, especially if it's close to lunchtime. And that's us. We're supposed to take the fragrance of Jesus with us into our office, into our neighborhood, into our uh, school, into everywhere we go. And that's our calling. So even if your career is miserable, your calling is the best job in the world. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So in verse 3 of chapter, uh, in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, 
Paul writes and says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So what is he talking about when he mentions letters of commendation? In that day, of course, there was no internet. So if a guy showed up at your church and said, hey, I'm Jeff Berger, I'm a preacher of the gospel. Do y'all have a time when I could share from the Word of God for you this Sunday or some Sunday in the future? You would have no way of knowing whether I was legitimate or a false prophet or an absolute child of the devil. So what preachers would do is they would carry letters of commendation with them and it would say something like, I, Paul the Apostle, commend to you Jeff Berger as a preacher of the gospel. I've trained him, I've seen him, I know he's for real. So, and in fact, we see an example of this in the book of Acts. In Acts 18.27, it says that Apollos, remember Apollos had some competition with Paul in Corinth, not by either of their uh, will, but just because the people of Corinth uh, chose to say, I like Paul and I like Apollos. So in Acts 20, 18, 27, it says that Apollos was coming to Achaia, the region where Corinth is, and Aquila and Priscilla wrote a letter of commendation for him to say, we've checked this guy out, we've discipled him, his theology is solid, you can trust him. So what was Paul saying? Paul is seeming to imply that people in Corinth, remember, he had gone there and been accused of some things, been uh, harassed and, and mistreated. And I think he's saying, do I need to give you my resume? Really? Do I need for somebody to write to you and say, I commend Paul? And his point is, I don't really do, need to do that, do I? Because you're my resume. You're my letter of commendation. You are the ones who are the proof of my calling. And, and he says... Our real letter of recommendation, our real resume is not written with ink and it's not on tablets of stone. Think about it today. It would say it's not written on Microsoft Word. You know, it's not, it's not printed out on a, a, an HP printer. The people to whom you minister, and this is for all of us because we all have the same calling. The people to whom you minister are your resume. Put it this way. When you die, and me or whoever it is that does your funeral stands up there. They're not going to spend a lot of time talking about where you went to school. They're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what positions you held in your various companies or your net worth or any accomplishments you accomplished in those jobs. What they will talk about is, this is a person she touched. This is a guy he uh, mentored. This is someone who would say, He's the, he, he's the best person I've ever known. I couldn't have done it without him. You see, there's a difference between resume accomplishments and eulogy accomplishments. And in the end, those eulogy accomplishments matter more. And not just because you hear about them at your funeral. It's because those are the things that last forever. Those are the things that matter the most. I, I know some of you know this story because we showed it on a video a few years ago, but uh, there's a young man in our church uh, named Sean and... Some years ago, my wife and I hosted for a while a, a young adult Bible study at my house, just college age and just out, out of college, that 18 to 25 age group. And they'd come on Sunday nights and they'd uh, 
we'd cook them a meal and they'd eat and we'd do a Bible study and it was a lot of fun. But after a few years, it just wore us out. You know, Sundays at the I got to where every Sunday I was like, oh, goodness, I don't know if I have it in me. So we finally stopped. But during that time, Sean got saved. He'd grown up in church. Family's very church going, but he had never really followed Jesus. And his life was messed up. He can give you his testimony and tell you the details. And now that young man is on fire for Christ. And I'm not saying I did that. I'm saying we had a part in it. I got to baptize him in the pool there at our former house and then baptize him again in the church. And, you know, in the, in the end, my title, my ordination, my education in seminary, none of those really prove anything. But the fact that God used me in Sean's life, when I get down and discouraged, I think about that and go, okay, God is using me. God has called me. And you need to be able to say, I know God is using me in this person's life. And it may not be something dramatic. It may not be that there's some witch doctor who's now a preacher because of you. I'm not saying it has to be something like that. But you need to be able to say, I know I'm an encouragement to her in her time of grief. I know, I, I know this person used to be this far away from Jesus, and now they're maybe this far away because they saw something in me they didn't see in other Christians. That's our calling. So evidence that you're making a difference is what I'm talking about. That's one reason why this is the best job in the world. If you, if you have a job doing anything else, you, it's hard to know that you're making a difference. You know, making widgets, as much as good as that does the economy, doesn't bring the same kind of satisfaction. And then there's competence to do the job well. Verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You see what Paul's doing there? He doesn't want to sound like he's bragging because he's just said, you are our letter of commendation. You are our evidence. And then he comes back and says, I don't want to make it sound like we did it. We know that God did it through us because we can't do anything. We're only sufficient in so much as God works through us. But the good news about that is... If God works through people like Paul, He works through people like us too. And, and you know you've heard that saying, I, all of you have been in church before, and you've heard that saying, God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called, right? And that's very true. Yes, it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. God will never give you a job to do without also giving you the ability to accomplish it. God's not in the business of setting us up for failure. He gives us the ability to accomplish our task. And in fact, one of the ways you know it's God calling you is it's going to be something that probably wouldn't come naturally to you. Something that you look at and think, oh, I don't know if I'm capable of that. And some of you might, for instance, say, you know, we're talking about transforming relationships and, and yeah, I, I'm, I just don't know that there's any younger person that would want anything to do with me. Why would they want to hang out with someone my age? And you'd be surprised how many young adults out there, how many teenagers out there are lonely and don't have anyone who's invested in them. Their mom, their dad are working night and day. Uh, they, their teachers have 35 kids in a classroom. Just to have one adult who says, I'm going to focus on you can be a powerful thing. Or you might say, yeah, I know I should be witnessing to this non-Christian neighbor, but I've met him and 
He's way more educated than I am, and I know he's going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. And one of the things you're going to find out is that it's not necessarily... Most people who get saved don't get saved because they meet a Christian who's smarter than them. Most, I don't, I've never met anybody who has argued into the kingdom of God. Now, is there a place for, hey there, it's my wife, sorry. Is there a place for intellectual engagement? Absolutely. And are there times when it's a powerful thing to, for a, an atheist to meet a Christian and realize, oh, well, these folks, actually, there is something to this intellectually. Yeah, that can break down some barriers. But you know what's even more powerful? is when they meet someone who has integrity, who exhibits joy, who shows love, who has humility, things they don't tend to see in the world, like grace. There's not a lot of grace in this world. When they see grace in us, it can be powerful. I've just gotten through listening to a book, you know, audio book, um, about, uh, and it's not even by a Christian man, but it's about uh, how we come up with our ideas. And he says, everybody thinks that People make their decisions based on rational means, but it's not true. He said, your rational mind is like the rider on an elephant. Your intuitions are the elephant. Your emotions are the elephant. The way you're wired is the elephant. So if you want to change someone's mind, yeah, you can argue with them, but it's a lot better to get close to them and help them to see, oh, well, I always thought Christians were nuts, but this guy's not so bad. Well, I always thought Christians were hypocrites, but she seems pretty genuine. That's what can change people's minds far more than intellectual arguments. So competence to do the job well. God's going to supply. And then the privilege of serving under a new covenant. I know it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, and yet what Jesus offers to the world is still revolutionary. It says in verse 6, "...who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, we'll get to that later, don't worry, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Now, I know that he says the word glory a lot, and that's a very confusing little passage I just read. But Paul has just said something really significant. This is one of those passages, many passages in Paul's writings where you think, boy, the old Paul, if he would have heard these, this from someone else, he would have wanted to cut their throat. Because what he's saying is, the law of Moses is limited. The law of Moses needed to be updated, needed to be superseded. There is a new covenant. Remember, who was Paul before he met Jesus? He was a Pharisee. What did Pharisees do? Their whole job, now they had day jobs, but their whole calling, their, their whole life livelihood was to uphold the law of Moses. They believed the worst thing that ever happened to Israel was us losing our nation because of idolatry, so we're going to make sure every Israelite man, woman, and child knows the law of God, so that means we're going to memorize all 613 commands, and we're going to walk in those laws so, the, so that the Israelites, all the nation of Israel, sees that it can be done, and we'll inspire them, and we'll 
will expose any Jew that doesn't live by these laws and will expose them to public shame because it's our job to be the moral policeman who keeps everyone true to the law. And now here's Paul saying, the law is the ministry of death. Now realize, he's not saying that it's no longer Scripture. He still loves the Word of God in the Old Testament. What he's saying is, if that's all you have, you're dead. He's saying there's a new covenant. When he says that word new covenant, that comes from Jeremiah 31. One of the real foundational passages of the Old Testament. One of those passages that makes the link between old and new. Because Jeremiah says, hey, the, the old covenant won't get you there. There's something new coming. The old covenant is laws. The new covenant will be spirit. The old covenant is something external. The new covenant will be something God places inside of you. One is going to show you how far you have to go. The other one is going to show you how to get there. Here's one way to look at it. Imagine life is a climb up a sheer cliff, right? So the law of Moses, I mean, and everybody's trying different ways to get up that cliff and nobody's making it. The law of Moses comes along and says, here's your roadmap. You want to get up that cliff? You put your hand here, you put your hand there, you put your foot there, and you go, here's how you get up it. Now, unfortunately, nobody can do it. They climb up it a little ways and then they fall down. But at least you know it's possible. Okay, here's the map. If I could just do this, I would get there. And then the new covenant comes along. You know what it is? It's a helicopter that takes you to the top. That's the gospel, right? There's no climbing. It's trust in Jesus. He takes you there. And that's what Paul's saying is the old covenant I mean, I was so excited about that. That was my whole life as a Pharisee. That's all I cared about. It's so much more fulfilling now to be able to come to people and say, I'll take you there. Not, here's how you get there, but I'll take you there. And that's what we have too. That's why it's good news. You realize that, right? Growing up, I I never could understand that. You know, I'd hear all the time, it's good news, it's good news. And I'd think, I don't know, you go to church Follow all these rules? I didn't understand. The good news is that it's already been done for you. And we get to share that with people. That everything they're looking for and beating their heads against the wall to try to find is already there. They just have to receive it. They just have to receive it. So yeah, you get to be part of a new covenant. And then the the final thing that makes us the best job ever is you have a promise of certain victory. Verse 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So I said I would explain that. He made reference to that earlier. What is this about? In Exodus 34, which we're going to start a series on Exodus uh, Sunday after Easter. Exodus 34 tells about how when Moses came down from encountering God, his face would glow. And the Israelites would just stare at that glow. They were distracted by it, so he'd put a veil on. Hebrews says that one of the reasons he wore the veil wasn't just because it distracted him, but also because as it started to fade, they'd lose confidence in Moses. So he was covering his face so that uh, they wouldn't say, oh, well, I guess it's time for you to get back in touch with the Lord. You know, Um, The glory was only temporary, in other words. That's what Paul's saying. Now listen to where he goes with that truth. Verse 14, 
but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. What is he saying? When you and I, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, and because we have uh, communities of believers that come together in small groups like on Sunday morning or like we're doing here, we understand when we read the Old Testament, oh, okay, the Passover, that's, that's talking about Jesus. Oh, the parting of the Red Sea, well, that's, that's, that's sort of like baptism. That's, that's, you know, God's leading us through the water and into new life. Oh, uh, you know, the, unto us a child is born, that's the birth of the Son of God. And the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and how by his stripes we'll be healed, well, that's, that's Jesus too. We can see Jesus all through the Old Testament But people who don't have the Spirit don't see that. His point is, my fellow Jews, who I love, every Sabbath they go in and they hear the Torah read. And they don't see Jesus in it. They just see laws. They just see rules. They just see a roadmap they can't follow. And it's sad. In verse 16 he says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I know I don't have time to try to explain the Trinity, but I don't think I could if I had time. You understand? But this is one of those passages that tells us the Holy Spirit is not just some kind of force out there in the world. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is divine. He is one of the three divine persons of the Godhead. Don't ask me to explain that, but it's true. He says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, this is one of the great verses in the whole Bible, when we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you were a kid, you probably had heroes. Maybe baseball player, maybe a movie star, rock star, whoever, somebody you looked up to. Maybe you had a poster of them in your bedroom, right? Looking at that poster, what did that do for you? Not one thing. But when we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, we start to become a little bit more like Him because of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that if we have a crucifix or a Sunday school portrait of Jesus, that's not what I mean. When we spend time in His presence, when we consider His glory, when we come to know Him better, that process of worshiping Him. You think that your Sunday morning activities are are just a check off the box, uh, something to make you feel good? No. If you are truly worshiping Jesus at 8.15 or 9.45 or 11, that's getting you closer to Jesus. That's, get, that's making you a little bit more like Him. When you read your Word of God in the morning or in the evening or at lunchtime, when you pray, when you obey Him, all those things we do to get closer to the Lord, they have an impact, a cumulative impact. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. And therefore, our glory is unstoppable. And our glory is eternal. I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent, but... One of the great promises of the Word, and this is going to come in chapter 4, is that outwardly 
There's nothing we can do to stop our bodies from aging. There's nothing we can do to stop our bodies from ultimately dying. But inwardly, we don't have to put up with that. Inwardly, we can get better and better and better with every single day. Every single day we can become more like Jesus. And that's one of the, one of the proofs that what we follow is not mere religion. Because what mere religion offers is rules and rituals. And there's worth in that. But what Jesus offers is transformation. If we walk with the Spirit of God, we will be transformed. And that means that life in the Spirit of God is never boring. It is never dull. It's never the same thing over and over again unless we make it that way. If we choose to truly follow the Holy Spirit, instead of settling for mere religion, our life is an adventure of growth and transformation. Um, And that means that there's a promise. The promise is at the, at the most important game, the most important contest of life, we're going to win. I don't know if, you know, it, whenever my time as a pastor is done, if people will look at me and say, oh, he was really successful as a pastor. I don't know. I don't know if people will say that uh, I was a great father or not. I don't know if when I die, I'll have more money than when I started out with, which, I had, which was basically zip. Um, I don't know any of those things, and neither do you, but you know that if you follow Christ, you'll be like him in the end. Isn't that great? The most important thing, you're guaranteed to win. You're going to be like Jesus. So I want to just end with this. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, article, talk he gave back during World War II called The Weight of Glory. He says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So, I don't don't think I can say it any better than that. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we pray Your blessing upon us and help us O Lord, to walk by Your Holy Spirit and to follow our calling to be uh, Your witnesses, Your ministers everywhere we go. Lord, make us a church that equips people for that calling. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.